Psalm 78, a masculine of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. And arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Amen. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing, shall we? Lord, we come to your word and we know that we can read it, we can hear it, uh, but Father, it will not profit us unless you give us faith to believe your word, unless you give us strength to obey your word. And so we ask, Father, work in us even now to bring about that which you desire in our hearts, a conformity to Christ a gratitude for what you have done and a joy to live in, Father, the light of your salvation and your word and works for us. Father, bless us, we pray now, and help us to remember you always and to never forget all that you have done for us, all that you have done in redemptive history, all that you have done, Father, in the history of your church. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. The simple message from these first eight verses, and this is one of the longest psalms, by the way, we're only going to focus on the first eight verses because everything from verse 9 to verse 72 is a retelling of Israel's disobedience, a retelling of how Israel failed. The point here of these eight verses is simple. Congregation, in order to be faithful to God, you must remember. In order to be faithful to God, you must remember God. In order to be faithful to God, you must remember God's word, his revelation given to us in scripture. You must remember God's work of redemption in history. You must, in other words, remember your history as God's people. You must remember redemptive history, what God did to save his people in the Old Testament, the Exodus, the time of David and Goliath, and so on and so forth. You must remember God's works in the New Testament with Jesus Christ on the cross in his resurrection. God of very God become man of very man for us and for our salvation. And you must remember the history of the church, God's work 
throughout the last 2,000 years. You must, in other words, be a people of historical memory, of historical remembrance. Look at the text here in Psalm 78. God calls you to remember him. In verse 2, the psalmist Asaph says, I will open my mouth, I will utter my mouth, I will utter dark sayings from of old, right? Things that perhaps have lain in obscurity. I'm going to talk about those things because they ought not to be obscure. Verse 3, things that we heard and known that our fathers have told us. Verse 4, we will not hide them. We will speak of these things. We will, verse 4, tell to the coming generation. But what exactly, what exactly is the content of that transmission, of that communication? The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. God commanded our fathers, verse 5, to teach to their children. Verse 6, that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn, there is to be a faithful transmission of God's word, of God's works throughout the generations of God's people. And then notice verse 7 and 8. What is the purpose of it all? Right? Why, why are we called parents? Why are you called to teach your children? Mothers, fathers, why are you called to, to teach your little ones from the youngest age? What is the church called to do in teaching the Bible, teaching doctrine, teaching what God has said, what God has done, what God has said, what God has done? Wash, rinse, repeat. Verse 7 and 8. So that they should set their hope in God. And not forget the works of God. But keep his commandments. That they should not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation whose heart was not steadfast. Whose spirit was not faithful to God. And that's what follows in verses 9 through 72, the unfaithfulness of Israel, right? There's, there's, there's kind of a negative cast to this pedagogical exercise of instruction. Why should we learn? Why should we remember? So that we not be faithful like our forefathers. God is telling Israel, but rather positively that we and all of our children, that all of our children's children set their hope in God so that they would love God, so that they would trust God, so that they would serve God all the days that God is pleased to give them. Let's step back for a minute and realize what God is saying here. Because it applies to us here today in the 21st century in the Northeast. God is speaking to Israel and commanding them to remember his word, remember his works. And Israel, you see, lived in a world that would have been swamped by idolatry. They were surrounded by Canaanite nations that did not know God. And so Israel could not afford, and beloved, we today, same situation. They and we cannot afford to spiritually coast 
to be comfortable, to live off the momentum of previous generations that saw God's word and works. Right? Israel, here, Asaph speaking probably after the time of David, right? They could have said, oh, yeah, we're Israelites. Uh, you know, we've been told about the Exodus. You can't spiritually coast. Israel could not depend on the surrounding Canaanite culture to help them raise faithful Israelites. Nothing in Canaanite culture was going to help them reinforce covenant faithfulness and remembrance of God. Rather, everything in Canaanite culture would be working against them and the raising of the next generation. Israel, in other words, had to swim upstream. And you see, nothing has changed. Today, it's the same thing. We're surrounded by not a Christian culture, not a culture that loves God and serves God and and wants to do what's right. We are surrounded by a culture that has been overcome by amnesia. No one remembers God. No one knows God's word. No one remembers God's works. And the mode of thinking of the Israelite here had to be, yes, we have one another. We have our fellow Israelites. But ultimately, we have God. There is none to help us but God. He alone is our strength. He alone is our refuge. And that's the same mindset we have to have, beloved. Everything in this world is against you. that, That might seem like a provocative statement. But it really isn't. It really isn't. We realize there's common grace. We realize the sun comes out every day by his grace, by his mercies. We realize that season follows season, right? There, there are many good things we find in creation. But make no mistakes, mistake about it, beloved. Everything in this world seeks to harm you, seeks to distract you, seeks to detract you from Christ, you and your children. You're not going to get a prize for doing what's right in this culture. You're not going to get a blue ribbon for doing what's right. Fathers, you're not going to get, you know, applause from society for being a man who leads your family in Christ. Moms, you're not going to get a blue ribbon or applause for being a mother who loves her children and trains them in the home. Israel, like us, had to develop a covenant consciousness that says we belong to God. We belong to God. We are obligated. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what's happening in the world. We are obligated to God with our very lives. His works, his goodness must continually be on our minds and must shape our hearts and our lives. The world's not going to tell us our own story. The world's not going to tell you about God. The world's not going to tell you about the fact that salvation is found in no one else. That's our job as the church. We must tell and retell and retell time and again what God has done in our lives, what God has done in history, what God has done in the world. And this is what we call covenant consciousness. We look back at God's word. We look back at God's works and say, this is our God. 
This is our God. This is our salvation. And we do not forget the Lord. This is really what the, the entirety of the Old Testament's about. God reminding his people. Don't forget. Remember, don't forget. Look at a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11 and 19, through 19. Deuteronomy is full of these types of expressions, right? Don't forget, remember, don't forget, remember. Verse 11, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you, to do you good in the end. The Lord here is recapitulating for Israel all the various particulars of his salvation, of what his works have been. And then verse 17, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he might confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. See, the problem here is not the wealth, it's not the power, it's not the houses, it's not the cisterns, it's not the vineyards. No, that's not the problem. That's never been the problem. God gave to Israel all of those things. What is the problem? Forgetting God, forgetting his word, forgetting his works. That is the danger. Forgetting means that we think that all of God's grace has been given to us and we deserve it. This is what we have done. Forgetting God means that we will take all the heritage of God the houses we didn't build, cisterns we didn't dig, vineyards we didn't plant, the land that we ourselves couldn't conquer with our own strength. God had to give it to us, right? We would take the entire heritage that God has given us, leading us through the desert and giving us all of his blessings, sustaining us in that wilderness land. Forgetting God means that we take all of that and let our hearts grow proud and we say, Who needs the Lord? Who needs the Lord? I I did all this. The strength of my might saved me. It was my good works. It was my obedience. It was my righteousness. And today, are we not confronted with the same? If we forget the Lord, beloved, this is what will happen. This is what will happen here. 
We're going to take our marriages. We're going to take our children. We're going to take the church. We're going to take all the material blessings God has given us. We're going to take all the blessings that God has given this country in times past. And we're going to take all the advancements of a Christianized culture. And we're going to say, we're going to say about all of that. We gave this to ourselves. So who needs the Lord? And, and isn't that what we have seen in our land? Isn't that what we've seen in our day? To whatever degree our land has been Christianized in the past, affected by the influence, the pervasive, life-giving influence of Christianity, right? What we say in our day is we, we love those goodies that the Christian culture has given us, but we don't want the very center, the very focus, the very, the very thing that gave us this blessing, God himself. And so by the time you get to Jeremiah Chapter 6, verse 16, this is, this is what God continues to say, right? Take care lest you forget. Remember the Lord. Jeremiah 6, 16, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. The concern of Jeremiah, and here you see hundreds of years later, after repeating, we, we can't go through all the, the scripture verses in the Old Testament, but here Jeremiah stands at the very end of the Old Testament, at the brink of the exile. This is it. God, God is giving Israel, Judah, one last chance. And Jeremiah says to God's people, stand by the roads, look, ask for the ancient paths. Ask for those good ways that you may walk in them once more. Israel has so forgotten the Lord. She is so far from him that they're called ancient paths. Because God, because Israel has not, it's been, it's been generations since Israel has walked faithfully in the way of God. And yet there is no hope for us outside of Christ, his word, his works, the ancient paths that God gives us in his word, in his works. That's why Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not, forget not, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. That was the call of God to ancient Israel. That's the call of God to us today, beloved. We're to grab ourselves by the collar. We're to speak to our souls and say, remember God. Do not forget God. Remember God. Remember his word, remember his works, remember his heritage that he gave you in Christ by his grace. And isn't this, in fact, what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is? In John 14, verse 26, we're told by Jesus the night he was betrayed as he gives that final discourse, that final time of teaching. 
But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is why the Spirit is given. Right? Some of us are coming out of Pentecostal backgrounds. Right? There's an there's a undue overemphasis on the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, the voice of the Spirit, the word of the Spirit. No, it's, it's right here. This is why the Spirit is given. He comes, He is given by God to His Son, and the Son gives the Spirit to us to remind us of all that Christ has taught us. The Spirit is not given to teach a new word. The Spirit is given to teach us an old word, the word of Jesus Christ. He does not come to give His will, but to reveal the will of Jesus Christ. He stands, as it were, behind Christ to illuminate Christ, to magnify Christ, to put the spotlight on Christ. It's as if Jesus were on the stage and the Spirit is a spotlight shining the light on Christ to remember, to remember all that He has said and isn't then this what apostolic ministry is? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If we are to serve the Lord, if we are to be reformed, always reforming, we must remember what we've been taught, what the church has been given. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, 2, and 3. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. There's a choice before them, reformation or deformation. Will you stand in that word that you received, O Corinthian church, or you, will you forget that word? And believe in vain and have believed in vain. And then notice verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Back to the word. That he appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive though some had fallen asleep. You see, you see what's happening here with the Apostle Paul? Notice that there are three generations here given to us in this text. That which was given to me, right? It was transmitted to me. That which was before me, that's the first generation. I now am the second generation. That which was given to me, I received. That which I received, I delivered to you. And that which was delivered to you, you received. And in that truth, you stand. What Paul here is outlining is what is to be the faithful line of transmission in the covenants, in the church. The church receives the gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ. Not an invention of man. Not something that we've conjured up with our imagination. If you want to know what man's imagination conjures up, look at every religion of this world that teaches man that he can save himself. 
No, this religion, the Christian faith, has to be revealed because it goes against, it so goes against man's fleshful inclination to give glory to himself. The church receives the gospel from the Lord and then it transmits that gospel to the next generation so that they would believe the gospel of Christ and serve the Lord Jesus Christ and transmit that gospel to the next generation after them. Paul gives the gospel to the church, Timothy, Titus, others, that they would give the gospel onward to a generation yet unborn, to a generation that Paul the Apostle will never have met. This is the call of Christ, back to Psalm 78, to not hide from the next generation what God has said, what God has done. And we get now to the Reformation. The Reformation, the Protestant Reformation that occurred in Europe 500 years ago. We ask the question, why was there a Reformation? There was a Reformation because there was first a formation, the gospel of God given to his church. But then there was soon in time a deformation in history. The church forgot the gospel of God. The church forgot that which Deuteronomy 8, which we read, outlines that all that we have, all that we have been given, has been given to us by grace. And this is something that is the perennial temptation of the church. Look over at Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul was battling this in his own lifetime, in his own ministry, in many churches, but especially here in the church at Galatia. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This cancerous heresy that we can be accepted by God through our works, through our obedience, or through the use of sacraments or something else. This was happening in the time of Paul the Apostle. They've deserted the gospel. They have so quickly abandoned Jesus Christ, forgetting him and being deformed. And that's why the reformers 500 years ago had ample opportunity to go back to the epistle to the Romans and the epistle to the Galatians and preach once more the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where Rome said man is made right with God through good works or through charity or, or obedience. God says very clearly, Galatians chapter 2 verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We're not made right. Justification is a legal term. It means that God doesn't accept us. 
sinners that we are guilty and condemned by our own sins. We have no acceptance. We have no place before God's righteous judgments in our own selves, by our own works. We are accepted only in the work of Jesus Christ. Only because of his perfect life. Only because of his righteous death. And you see, this is the recovery of the gospel. That is the reformation. And so many hymns testify to that, that we sing. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. But Jesus washed it white as snow. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We are forgiven, we are declared righteous, as if we had never sinned. But more than this, as if we had kept the law of God. It's not just that we're declared not guilty. It's not just that we're declared innocent. It's that we're declared righteous. In and through the righteousness and death of Jesus Christ. By his mercies given to us alone in Christ Jesus. And because of that you see what we can say is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are freed from the guilt of our sins. We are freed from the shame of our sins. As we sang in Christ alone our hope is found. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Beloved, this has been the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives true peace and freedom wherever it has been believed, wherever it has been recovered. Martin Luther, a monk who said later on in life, if anyone could have been saved through monkery, through all the works I did as a monk, it would have been me. Right In the confessional booth, 10 hours a day, confessing every little sin, every little peccadillo, right? thinking that it was his work that would justify him before God. He was so exacting in his, what he thought was his obedience. And yet he couldn't understand how man is made righteous with God, how he's made how he's justified before God. And it's that breakthrough of the gospel in Romans 3 that God is both just and the justifier. Yes, God is just. God is wrathful. Our sins cry out against us before God. He is just and yet he is the justifier. God provides what I need to stand before him, not by the works of my hands, not with all the endless Tears I can cry or good works I can perform. It's God himself who provides our salvation. And it was this, it was this, it was when Luther understood this gospel that he broke through and he understood peace for the first time in his life. He understood what comes later in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And beloved, this is the message we need to hear. This is the message our world needs to hear because our world is so full of not peace, of war, of hatred, of agitation, seeking peace. They will never have peace outside of Christ, seeking atonement for their sins by whatever means they can conjure up. Man will never have atonement outside the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the message, beloved, not just that the world needs to hear. This is the message, let's be honest, that you need to hear, that I need to hear every day. Because is it not true that every day we sin against God? Is it not true that every day we sin against God by word, thought, and deed? Is it not true that our sins can oftentimes cry out against us and our consciences are so afflicted because of what we've done or what we have left undone? And what we need to hear is that we have acceptance with God in Jesus Christ. It is Christ alone who is your Savior. It is Christ alone who has taken away your sins and has cleansed you and calls you His and names you righteous. And when we sin, you see, we go to God. We go to God. Beloved, don't, don't hide your sins. Don't, don't keep doubling down in your sins or in your pride. You go to God. And, and what you find in God, brother and sister, is not condemnation. Yes, you find fatherly displeasure from God who is your heavenly father through Jesus Christ. But what you also find is forgiveness, full and free, and the strength of his spirit to help you to obey Christ and to love Christ. Nothing can ever break that bond of love that we have with God our Father. And that's why the scriptures repeatedly tell us, Romans 8, nothing can separate us from his love. We are as justified now as we will ever be. We are as united to Christ now as we will ever be. Nothing can ever separate us from his love. And can I, can I press in a little bit more here? So often... We afflict ourselves with our own self-made laws. We, we come up with standards that are impossible for our lives. I'm reminded of this recently you know, as parents. Mothers, fathers, you should know that parenting is the last bastion of acceptable legalism. But it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Right? We can oftentimes entertain thoughts that uh, I will be a, a, a more godly parent if you know, I buy this car seat for my child. Right Here, Sunday morning, it sounds so trivial, it sounds so ridiculous, but we, we all entertain thoughts like this. We suffer from self-loathing, a performance-driven life. But God says, why? Why? Why impose a new law, a new standard when you've been freed from the condemnation of falling always short of that standard that God has given us? No, we, we are to live lives full of joy, full of mercy, full of no guilt, 
Our guilt has been taken by Christ. Our guilt has been taken by Christ. This is the recovery of the gospel. But you see, it was recovered because of a second doctrine that was as important, which is the doctrine of the absolute authority of Christ's word. How blessed we are, beloved, as Christians in our day to have the Bible written in our own language. This, in fact, is a direct consequence of the Protestant Reformation that taught that we, if we are to live by every word that proceeds from God's mouth, must know God's word. But how can we know a word if if it's written in Latin, a language that is foreign to us? No, we must know God's word in our own tongue. We know that we are justified by grace alone, in Christ alone, because the word teaches us this. The word teaches us this. And as it teaches us that Christ's word alone has absolute authority, the consequence of that then is is so manifold. And, And the consequences extend even beyond the church, extend into society. It means that no other authority has absolute authority. It means that whatever authority popes or bishops or cardinals or priests may have, it's relativized. It's not absolute. Because only Christ has absolute authority. It means that whatever authority, governing authorities have, monarchs, kings, and queens, it's relativized. It's not absolute. We would not have this country, beloved, if it wasn't for the Protestant Reformation. We would not have political freedoms that curb absolutist political power if it wasn't for the Protestant Reformation. We would not have economic freedoms in our day that we've enjoyed for three, four hundred years now if it wasn't for the Protestant Reformation. Because scripture taught and the consequence, the implications of this axiom, of this biblical truth were fleshed out in the world beyond the church. Tyranny may not exist because only Jesus Christ has absolute crown rights as king of kings and lord of lords. The consequences of the Protestant Reformation are manifold. What, we, what we're doing here today is just stepping back for a second and considering them. Keep coming every Lord's Day to learn more about what Scripture teaches. But today, as we conclude, here's the question we ask ourselves. Will we remember the Lord? Will we have once more a reformation of remembrance? We need to know who God is. How how does God save us? What is salvation? And by what standard do we know these things? By what standard do we know anything? We need to remember not just doctrinally, but creationally. What God says, what is a man? What is a woman? What is good and proper sexuality? How is life to be rightly ordered? There is an amnesia that has overrun our day. It has overtaken our land. As I mentioned before, we don't know anything because we don't remember anything. We don't remember anything because we have lost sight, consciousness, and memory of God. 
And yet this is the blessing that you have, that the church has today, a blessing that is also a mandate to recover what has been lost. And the task is simple, to continually, simply go back to the ancient path of God's word, of his works, to our heritage, to be able to address the modern heresies that we see in our day, the, the modern problems, the challenges that we think no one else has ever faced. No, the church has faced all sorts of problems in the past. The challenge that we have today is to grow and build on the wisdom of Christ and the work of the church in generations past. Do not leave your heritage behind. Do not forget your heritage. Do not despise your heritage. Do not despise biblical tradition. Can I be frank with you? Can I be honest with you? More pointed? We cannot despise the very things we depend on. This is the classic definition of decadence. We despise the very things we depend on. We depend on lawful governance, but we despise it. We despise what the church has said in times past, but we depend on that to have healthy churches. I paraphrase here something a writer said many years ago. Biblical tradition is that set of answers to those questions that no longer exist because they were fully addressed and settled. But when you forget biblical tradition and reject the wisdom of God, those questions come raging back because we have forsaken, we have despised what God has said, his word, his works, his heritage, right? In our day, we find ourselves spinning our wheels. We're reinventing the wheel. What is man? What is anthropology? What is salvation? How do we know things? It's a tragedy that in every generation, we have to have a reset. We have to relearn things once more. We have to go back to basics because we have forgotten God. We refuse to build on what has come before us because we have despised what has been said, what has been taught, what has been believed by faithful Christians in times past. And so, beloved, this is a call to us. This is a call to parents, fathers, mothers. This is a call to the church. Do not forget the Lord, but remember him and transmit to the next generation the heritage of God. Will we have a reformation of remembrance? remembering the spiritual inheritance of our past forefathers to thus live for God? Or will we have a deformation of spiritual dementia and amnesia where we forget Christ, we think little of him, we despise him, we reject our inheritance and are destroyed? That, beloved, is what lies in front of us. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, to help us, grant us, Father, what we need. Grant us, Father, 
this covenantum remembrance, this covenant consciousness. Father, a continual going back to ancient paths that they would not be so ancient to us in our generation. To take up the standard of the gospel once more. That, Father, we would see the next generation formed by your word, by your works, by the heritage that you give us, Father, in our history as your people. Father, would you continue to do this work in our midst and be pleased to do all of your holy will. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.